0: Recovery Elevator episode 339.
1: You know, it opened it opened the door and it opened my mind to this possibility that I didn't have to live like this for the rest of my life.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we got Nate. He's 39 years old. He's from Ohio and took his last drink on October 9th, 2015. Yo, Team RE, I'm calling in a favor. If you like the Recovery Elevator Podcast, my ask is that you leave us a review in iTunes. Leaving a digital footprint in this space helps soften the stigma and helps us reach new listeners. It's also a mini version of Burning the Ships. Again, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time and feel it's helped you on your alcohol-free journey, then please leave us a review. I hope you guys enjoyed Odette's intro last week. Again, for Season 3, Odette is doing every 8th intro, and then Chris and Odette are doing the interviews, and Chris does 1 out of every 4 interview. This is a big week for Recovery Elevator. This Thursday is the start of our first event since COVID, thank goodness. In all reality, the universe was quite kind to us in regards to events and COVID. I recall being in my hotel room in Bangkok, Thailand, on our Asia Adventure sober travel trip at the end of January 2020. I was flipping through news channels, and after six consecutive channels were covering COVID, I was like, oh shit, I hope we all make it home. And yes, we all made it home right before pretty much everything shut down. I even had a 14-hour layover in Hong Kong. It's actually a really cool city. So live events are back, and Chris, Odette, and other team members of RE are showing up at my house today, and we're getting our retreat week started right now. And for those of you traveling to Montana this week, and we're expecting right around 100, here's a message for you. Get on the plane, get in the car, get yourself here. We got your back. It's going to be a great weekend. So my favorite part of RE is back, and I hope to see you at an upcoming event. We've got Costa Rica, January 15th to the 23rd, and then we're in Denver, Colorado, April 14th to the 17th. I want to thank Liz for volunteering for 26 consecutive weeks for doing the show notes. And show notes are basically a summary of the episode, and they contain all the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast. So thank you, Liz. And then I want to welcome Hillary to the team. Thank you so much, Hillary. Okay, let's get started. Does addiction serve a purpose? Is there a point behind an addiction? Or is addiction like yellow Skittles or anything that isn't a marshmallow in a box of Lucky Charms? And just so you know, General Mills, nobody is buying Lucky Charms for the cardboard filler that every kid has to willpower through each morning just to get to the marshmallows. Take some breaths, Pablo. We're going to be okay. (laughs) All right, I'm back. So I love this topic, guys. In fact, I did a YouTube video on this topic earlier this year. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Hillary. Okay, before I address if addiction serves a purpose, it would be prudent for us to discuss if addiction is a disease or not. And you've heard me say on this podcast that in 1958, the AMA, the American Medical Association, classified addiction, alcoholism as a disease. But I think it's important for individuals and groups after presented with new, reliable information to change opinions. And that's what I've done. I do not think addiction is a disease in terms of your genetic code predetermining if you'll be an alcoholic or addicted to alcohol. Scientists have yet to find the alcoholism gene, despite the 20 years it took to fully sequence and map the human genome. They also didn't find the cocaine gene, the social media addiction gene, the Amazon shoe shopping gene, and others. Why? Because I don't think it's there. So, sure, brain scans of an addicted brain and a normal drinker's brain, they look drastically different. But those changes can be reversed with time in an alcohol free life. Addiction guru Dr. Gaber Mate, who just had the movie The Wisdom of Trauma come out, highly recommend watching that, would also say that addiction isn't a disease, but a learned behavior that expresses itself in unhealthy environments. And that's the key word environments. In unhealthy, traumatic, or lonely environments, We develop adaptive behaviors such as excessive drinking to help us cope. I don't expect everyone to agree with me on this one, but try to stay open. All right, if it's not a malfunction in a genetic code, then what is it? Does addiction serve a purpose? The short answer is yes. In biology, this is called endowment theory. This means that everything exists for a purpose. And the purpose is usually to advance us in our own personal growth. And another word for this is evolution. As in, things flex us to make change. Not because we want to make change, but because we don't have a choice. As in, if we want to survive, we have to change. Let's look at flight for a moment creatures with wings. One theory is that creatures learned to fly not because the distance from point A to point B was fastest through the air, but because holding on became too difficult. Let's say that one more time staying attached to something, and it could be a branch, a twig, a coral reef, or a resentment was more burdensome than letting go. So that right there could be a whole topic in itself, as in holding on becomes harder than letting go. All right, addiction. Here we go. And listeners, I'm aware I could be dead wrong on this theory, and I'm optimistic in my lifetime. uh, I'll have an idea, or not if I am. But at year six of doing Recovery Elevator, I think... Well, I'm confident there's some substance here. So first off, ditch the idea that we're at the back of the societal queue. As in, we fucked up in life and we need to drag ourselves to a church basement and attend meetings. In fact, it's quite the opposite. As the Buddha said, all of humanity needs to make a river crossing of consciousness. And we are the ones that make this crossing first. And what does the river crossing mean? It means to let go. To let go of our resentments. Fears, anxieties, jealousies, attachments, and choose love. I feel an addiction. If you do ride that wave of pain long enough, it will give you two choices and no more. Those choices are life or death. I'm incredibly thankful in 2014, I was given this ultimatum and I chose life. And then, in order to be successful in this choice, I had to learn how to deal with regrets, depression, anxiety, jealousies, loneliness, yellow skittles, and other people that don't see things the way I do, all without alcohol. Now, I want to make an important point right now. Thanks to the stigma, which helps keep paradigms in check, we label ourselves dysfunctional or broken. And sure, addictions represent things that need deep, deep healing. Let's not omit that. But even on day one of your journey, you can do something the rest of society cannot. Something that is vital to our survival as a species. We have never been more divided in America and around the globe than we are right now. And the thing that communities or parties need to do, but can't, is put aside differences, come together, and work towards a common goal of unity. This is getting harder and harder, for some reason, for humans to do. And the dysfunction of the thinking mind has never been clearer. And we need to work together. And that is exactly what takes place in AA, our Cafe RE chats, and the whole recovery world. People on this alcohol-free journey understand that love and acceptance is more important than you should be wearing a mask or you should get vaccinated. And if you don't, we're no longer friends. We work together for one common goal every day. The rest of society is not equipped with the tools and emotional intelligence to do so. And this is a major problem, not for us, but for them. I feel addictions are wake-up calls. They're almost invitations to step into your true, authentic self, who you're supposed to be in this ephemeral life. You guys, the goal isn't to quit drinking, per se, but the goal is for you to be you, the artist, the painter, the podcaster, the musician, the builder, the father, the mother, the leader. If you are truly you... As Odette would say, adios alcohol. Addictions are like the emergency breaks in life that say, Yo Susan, your job is sucking your soul. It's time to go train dolphins in St. Lucia. Or something like that. Addictions force us to become aware of our blind spots. Character defects, as they call it. We have to, because it's a matter of life or death. Normal drinkers, they aren't aware of their blind spots, because the repercussions aren't as extreme. Therefore, they're not presented with the opportunities of growth like we are. You've probably heard the quote, you can be right or you can be at peace. Now, this looks great on paper, but this concept goes right out of the window for the majority of people when in confrontation, except for those who have experienced an addiction. We see over and over that choosing fear, hatred, and scarcity will always lead to the same thing, disconnection. So out of desperation, we are forced to choose peace to choose love. Because being right at all costs, even if we are, can lead us to drink. And for many of us, that's death. Addictions give us the fast track to see that love always wins. And we get there by seeing what's not working in life. There's a big question we all try to answer, and that is who we are. Who am I? I'm a firm believer that you answer this question through a series of life experiences that tell you who you are not. I feel addictions are clear signposts saying, nope, nope, back it up. Let's go a different path. Change is necessary. Addictions have the capacity, if we view them this way, to introduce us, or a better way to say it is, to reunite ourselves again. And some of us, this is for the very first time. There's an inner kiddo inside of all of us, and an addiction can remove the veneer, the illusion of duality, and connect you with all your inner parts. Once inner coherence and connection has been established, then your external world has to follow. This is a universal law. This shouldn't be news to anyone, but we've got a faulty thinking machine upstairs. Turn on the news at night and you'll see this, fast. And we are the first wave of people who are forced to go internal and let go of ideas, thoughts, and narratives because holding on to them is too painful, as then it becomes easier to let go than to hold on to the anger, the jealousy, or resentments. I think an addiction exists to push us back to source, to creation, to love and light. And it works either way. Let me explain that for a second. What I mean is if you quit drinking or not, addiction will still take you to source. And one way is to ride out the addiction, to continue drinking, which is incredibly painful and I do not recommend because it's not needed. And if you're listening to this podcast, I know you've already made a different choice. And that choice is to voluntarily quit to cross the river of consciousness on your own, which takes immense courage and fortitude, and you guys are badass for doing so. So please, I encourage you to stop labeling your drinking problem as bad, because it's not, and that's a major waste of time and energy. So addiction is on the rise in the East and the West, and that may not be a bad thing, since we all need to start working together as a species, and the only way for us to do this is to address the inner disconnection at the individual level. And I feel that's the main point of an addiction. I hope you enjoyed the topic today. Again, I love this subject matter. And before we hear from Odette and Nate, let's hear from Exact Nature.
2: Exact Nature loves partnering with Recovery Elevator because we are committed to the same goal. To help other individuals quit drinking and stay on this sober path. Exact Nature provides all-safe, all-natural, THC-free, proprietary formula CBD products. If you want to check them out, head over to exactnature.com. As a Recovery Elevator listener, use a promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order at checkout. That's RE20 at checkout. Thank you so much, Paul. Nate, welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. How are you today?
1: Thanks so much. I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here always. uh, I never turned down an opportunity to share my story. So I appreciate the uh, opportunity today.
2: I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so happy that we're connecting. I know you've shared with me that you have talked about your story many, many times, but it's going to be a first for me and I know for many of our listeners. So I'm looking forward to getting to know you more. And let's get right to it. Nate, when was the last time you had a drink?
1: My last drink was on October 9th of
2: 2015. Wow, you're coming up on, let me do if I do my math right, coming up on six years.
1: (laughs) Coming up on six.
2: That's amazing. Congrats. Thank you. And can you give listeners some background about yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun?
1: Absolutely. I I grew up in, I'm an Ohio boy, born and bred, so a Midwest uh, upbringing and, you know, my family, I come from a family of of just blue collar, hardworking people and, you know, was raised with good, good, solid morals and, you know, nothing really traumatic or chaotic really to speak of in my childhood, which, you know, and, and that can be different. To, to some people that, uh, you know, start a, a path of addiction. And I talked to a lot of folks on, on my own podcast and it seems to be almost uh, a common theme. So I guess that might be uncommon, but, you know, it's, it's just part of my story. I started drinking at an early age to sort of fit in and numb some insecurities that I had always had growing up i realized that i was gay at an early age and living in in sort of small town rural ohio that wasn't really something i was going to share with anyone at the time so you know i kind of just added it to the list of things that made me feel different uh and really began internalizing things at that point point. and i think you know other individuals in the queer community can probably relate that you know, when you're internalizing such a huge part of of who you are and a huge part of your life, uh, it it begins to take a toll. And, uh, you know, I think that that alcohol in the beginning uh, was a way to not only fit in, but to accept myself. You know, I think if you don't have gay peers and if you don't have sort of uh, a an example of of what a gay life can look like i at least attached negativity to it and for it to be such a again large part of my life and uh it 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 began to um you know there was almost this internal hatred and almost an internal homophobia because i didn't understand what the gay culture was and like sort of a homophobia against myself uh, which can be, you know, a trauma in itself. So I used alcohol to numb that and to, to not feel that. And, you know, it sort of certainly carried on into high school and my, my college career. You know, I, I went to a, a university here in Ohio that's kind of known for being a party school. And I certainly knew that when I picked what college I was going to. And, you know, headed off with my budding alcoholic self. And, you know, this is sort of where it really went to the next level and started realizing consequences of my drinking while, you know, away at school and got my first DUI. And, you know, there were fights at parties and, you know, without turning it into a, a drunk log I think the, the takeaway here is it sort of elevated to the next level. And, You know when i graduated is really when it it sort of turned from the social fun drinking to that more misery necessity drinking like i needed the alcohol you know at this point my disease started as an obsession of the mind you know it was the routine what party are we going to who's buying the beer you know it was always like topic one of conversation so it started as an obsession of the mind and, and, of course, quickly turned into that actual physical addiction to alcohol. So by the time that I graduated and, and moved here to Columbus, Ohio, I certainly was physically addicted to alcohol and, and had started you know, drinking in the mornings. And, and like I said, it, it definitely was that misery necessity drinking at that point
2: question yeah i'm really glad that you brought this up because i feel like there's almost two tracks of for many people two tracks of socially drinking to isolating. You, you didn't mention the word, but to me, when I, when someone starts saying like, I start drinking in the morning or I start drinking once I'm home, even after the party, I think there's like a bridge that we cross at some point. And my dad has always told me that he doesn't know when he crossed from social to isolating from fun to mental obsession. And it's hard to actually even pinpoint. It's obviously part of the progression, but at some point we are walking along this bridge where we're, Taking ourselves to the other side, where same from fun to not fun, from yes. it's working to manage my anxiety and to help with my insecurities to crap. Now I'm feeling more anxious and possibly even more insecure and don't like myself. And the whole point was trying to like myself a little bit more. So it's this weird ridge that we yeah. cross, and there's no like timeline or defining moment. I think it's almost also the repetition and the habituation of our behavior. Our brains are super smart. So it sounds like you crossed that bridge. I did
1: cross it. Yeah. And, And you put it perfectly. I think that I can't identify when it happened. It's sort of this era almost of like a timeline that I understand like sort of when it got there. (laughs) <laughs> but you know it it seemed to happen in a blink of an eye, and I can't really identify when it happened. I think you put it perfectly,
2: yeah, and after college did you i know you moved to Columbus, but after yeah. college, how did you transition into just like quote unquote adulthood and having to have a job and be responsible while the yeah. drink was progressing? What happened after
1: so i I always have had a fairly good work ethic that was like the like my dad since you know we started working at 14 15 years old and even prior to that has always said work hard and be nice to people and so it was like always a theme in my life so it was the one thing that i could actually sort of cling to almost and like identify with was being a good worker and you know having some success in my career so Even while all this was happening on on the inside, I was still able at this point to, to hang on to that um, sort of work ethic, and you know I had I had some early success in my career. I graduated somehow from from OU and started in the uh, restaurant business and and sort of business management, and 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 started in a a multi-unit management job, and you know I was able. I guess fortunately or unfortunately to do to do the majority of the workload from home uh, which just fed my disease more and more because i would wake up in the morning and, and start with vodka and chardonnay not coffee and jump on some conference calls and you know take a nap and get i i started this vicious cycle of getting drunk like three or four times a day and then like taking these little micro naps so i would wake up and do a portion of my workload and get drunk and take a nap and wake up and and get drunk and do it all over again. So it turned in again to this isolating, vicious cycle where I was just sort of regressing and, and turning inward more and more and more. And I had developed this sort of dull headache at one point and it was almost like a stiff neck. Like I woke up one morning and just thought that I slept on my neck wrong. You know, I think we've all probably done it a hundred times and you know, you just wait a couple of days, you kind of try to stretch it out a little bit and you know, it didn't go away and being the good alcoholic that I was, I certainly wasn't going to go to a doctor. You know, I just was going to kind of wait it out and uh, you know, but it went on for two, three weeks and you know, of course, I was drinking and numbing and, and I just kind of forgot about it. But, you know, I was at my sister's house one day and I, I just fell to the ground. It felt like I got hit in the head with a hammer. Uh, my body went limp and I lost vision and I couldn't speak. And, and the right side of my body was numb. And we're terrified, of course. I mean, she she does her best to kind of Help me limp to the, to the car and we get to the ER and, and there's certainly a sense of urgency and, and people are rushing around. And, you know, I guess long story long, I, I had a stroke at the age of 32 as a, as a direct result of my alcoholism and wow. just completely beating my body up for the better part of two decades. And, you know, I did my best to protect the fact That internally, I knew damn well the reason that I had the stroke, but the doctors didn't really ask. And, you know, they were running tests and, you know, trying to figure out why this happened. And I spent six weeks in the neuro ICU. I learned to walk again at the age of 32. Uh, I learned to use my extremities again at the age of 32. Uh, By the grace of God, I, I didn't lose any cognitive uh, function or vocabulary or vision my vision came back shortly after but you know they they didn't really ask that many questions about addiction and my use of alcohol or drugs and I certainly wasn't going to bring it up but you know I laid in that hospital bed for almost 6 weeks and thought about every day what my first drink would be when I left that hospital. So I think for, for maybe folks who are listening who don't struggle with addiction, or you know, if you're a family member of, of someone that is struggling and, and you're tuning in for some advice, I think that speaks perfectly to the mind of an alcoholic and, and just the need and the sort of one-track mind and, and, and really where our disease can take us.
2: Thank for sharing that, Nate. I, that had to be so hard, and and I mean, thirty two years old is so young for a stroke. But like you said, I mean, the body keeps the score, and and there's a point in time where if you're not willing to slow down, I'm a firm believer that it's going to slow us down in in yes. whatever way that may be. And I I have a couple of questions. Yeah. You give me so much that I want to pull from, but throughout all of this. I do want to say it's interesting how we preach a lot in recovery. Like you have to be an advocate for yourself. And if you haven't flipped the switch from really holding on to your drinking to really wanting the help, it's like we also become an advocate for ourselves when it's going to affect us negatively. We're not going to talk about it to the doctor. We're not going to say, this is what's been going on. We're going to protect the way we protect our sobriety. Now we're going to protect our drinking so much when we're not ready make that change. And I I think it's so wild how there's these two sides, you know, the body gets used to you treating it well, but it also got used to this cycle that you were sharing. It got used to that cycle where it knew it was going to get drunk it knew it had to take a few naps to recover. And the body never ceases to amaze me because it It adapts to whatever (laughs) it adapts to the good, but also it adapts to the shit. It's like, yes, marvelous. But yeah, I also want to know, You said you were at your sister's when this happened. And I know that a big part of your story before getting sober, I assume, was just secrecy. You know, secrecy with your homosexuality, secrecy with your drinking. Were you at any point during everything that you've shared talking to anybody? Did anybody know? When did you come out? Did anybody know that you were drinking too much? Like, How did you start unpacking these big secrets?
1: You know, I was unpacking like you get back from like a three-month vacation and you don't want to deal with it it's like your socks first and you know it's like one by one so Mm -hmm. really i started coming out in at the end of high school to close trusted friends and it was always friends first never family so you know it was best friend two best friends in high school and then when i went to college i lived i lived an open life in college because that's just who I was. And I'm, I'm fairly effeminate, I guess. And, I, you know, it wasn't a secret. And I, I, yeah, when I was in college, I lived an open life. So that there was no secret there. But I guess family-wise, I started, by the time I, by the time I had the stroke, I was, I was definitely out to everybody. But it wasn't easy. You know, it, it wasn't all at once. And sometimes it was, people that would ask me and address it directly sometimes i was comfortable enough to let them know you know it it was definitely situational i guess Mm -hmm. but it it was probably over a 10-year period before i you know lived a completely open life and with uh, the
2: drinking, yeah. did you just surround yourself with people that were also drinkers, which is also very common, or yes. did you have people sharing concern at any point?
1: Not until after I had the stroke and I continued drinking. You know, my family, it, I'm not here to decide whether or not they have a drinking problem. That's, I think, for each of them to decide. But I I definitely was always around drinkers. My family drinks. And while I was definitely sneaking additional drinks in the bathroom in the laundry room, uh, you know, I had been drinking throughout the day, there were beers and in bottles and other people were drinking. So I could freely drink a normal amount. But again, I was certainly um, having that extra in secret.
2: Yeah, that that becomes such a lonely process. And just piled on so much shame, you know, because like I said, we're protecting ourselves, but we're also hurting ourselves. And it's, it's just hard to be with all those feelings. want to get back to the story of you saying that you were thinking about what you're going to drink every day while you were at the hospital bed. Yeah. What happened when you left the hospital? I want to know <laughs> what party you had at your own yes. place.
1: <laughs> well, here's the thing. So this happened on New Year's Eve. The, okay. the reason I, I was at my sister's house, because we typically had a, a New Year's Day party, family and friends. So I was there. We were like cleaning the house, prepping food, just getting ready for the party on New Year's Day. So, you know, I missed the New Year's party. So, of course, it was going to be champagne. So I left the hospital and we stopped at the liquor store and I got champagne and it was, it kind of didn't miss a beat. You know, it was off to the races.
2: Wow. Right where we left off, we always say.
1: Exactly where we left off. Yeah.
2: So, how did you get to? 2015, October 8th, 2015, October 9th, what happened?
1: Yes. So, you know, it it definitely, like I said, people after the stroke, when I continued the exact lifestyle that, that got me into uh, that mess uh, is is when really people started expressing concerns. So that, that turned me inward even more. And, you know, I, I was able to, for a while, blame it on depression and this sort of anxiety and depression that was caused by this major traumatic medical event. And, you know, the doctors were sort of supporting that at the time because the addiction still hadn't been addressed with anyone. The doctors still weren't asking questions and or relating the two. So I was able to uh, sort of blame it on just anxiety and depression for a while, but you know my family really knew what was going on. Of course, I mean I was just under the influence twenty four seven. I smelled like booze. I wasn't showing up places. Like you know they they were aware. the The closest ones were aware. My mom, my sister, my best friend so they definitely were expressing concerns they tried to intervene um, on a few occasions not in the traditional intervention sense but sort of you go to treatment today or like i we're not speaking until you do and i would say okay then i guess we're not going to speak for a while but then those boundaries weren't upheld those threats weren't upheld so i sort of knew that anyone else that came with that, uh, bullshit to me was sort of not going to uphold that. So another thing that, that sort of, um, didn't work for me, but I will say shortly after I had the stroke, my best friend and drinking buddy, but so much more than that. We're best friends today. We had been through so much together. She had started her own path to recovery and, started working a 12-step program and completed an inpatient treatment program. And, you know, we hear in the rooms uh, it's attraction rather than promotion, and she just did it. She just did it in the most perfect way of highlighting ways in which her own life had gotten better because of not drinking and saying, I'm here for you, and never judging the fact that this near-death experience didn't curb my addiction whatsoever. And she would say, hey, what are you doing on Wednesday at 6.30, you know, it was never, I think you need to go to a meeting with me. And while I did take her up on that offer and I went to my first meeting under the influence, don't recommend it, but it got me in the door. you know, it opened, it opened the door and it opened my mind to this possibility that I didn't have to live like this for the rest of my life. And uh, while I still had a few weeks left in me, um, you know, I, again, my sister, God bless her, has saved my life on several occasions. And we were, again, just hanging out one day at home and I caught myself in the mirror and You know, I think a lot of people who struggle with addiction can relate to the fact that we don't really look at ourselves in the mirror because we don't like what we see. And I probably hadn't looked looked at myself in the mirror for two or three years and I caught myself in the mirror and I just paused. And I had this moment of clarity and like sobriety, even though I was fully intoxicated, but I I had this moment of clarity where I just said out loud to myself like what the fuck are you doing with your life how did we get here where I mean what are we doing where did the last 15 years go like had this out loud conversation while just taking a a deep stare at myself in the mirror and I look back now and I I usually say like I don't know what happened or I don't know why it happened but I do because I have since found a higher power and I know that you know, if if I were left to my own decision-making that day, that I probably wouldn't be sitting here with you. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> Don't apologize.
1: But that was October 9th of 2015. I walked out of that bathroom, and I said to my sister, let's go. Two words, I said, let's go. And we were in the car 30 minutes later on the way to a treatment center.
2: Wow, Nate. I'm in a public space. You should have warned me that this was going to be a tearjerker.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> I'm so glad that I almost hadn't asked or listened more about your story because how beautiful it is to witness it. First of all, shout out to your best friend. I hope she's listening. <laughs> yes. Like, and she wouldn't I... mind
1: me saying, her name is Kelsey. She It does amazing things in the program. She She is one of a kind. And I had these two angels in my life, my sister, Nicole and Kelsey, who really, you know, I, I i don't know where I'd be, or if i if I would be without them.
2: I hear that. And my therapist always says, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. I kept thinking about her approach. And like you said, how perfectly she did it and how gentle she was. It's The culture where we don't foster a lot of gentleness towards people that struggle with mental health issues and it's what we need the most. So I'm so glad that you had her and you still have her. And, you know, I kept thinking that moment you had in the mirror, even though you had been drinking, even though you may have been drunk, the answers are inside of us. I felt like I kept hearing that. Few years ago, and I was like, "What the hell does that even mean?" The right. answers are already inside of me. <laughs> yeah, I think it's more we have those moments of clarity, like you said. You explained it so well. It's something that just kind of peeks out, and it's like, "There I am,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
2: there I am." And it's a moment. It all it takes is a moment of you seeing yourself to muster up some strength and hope, and see that your life can be different. But it's, it's hard. That had to be hard.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that I can remember is is the only one of those that has happened to me. So I can only encourage the listener to look for that. And if it happens, please capitalize on it. Please take advantage if, if you have one of these sort of eye-opening moments of clarity, because who knows if it, if it will happen again. And I think for that family member or that sister or that Kelsey in your own life, you know, we, I think to your point, there, there needs to be a gentleness about it, not a pushover uh, or, um, you know, letting um, things get too out of hand. But I think that, that for me, at least, I know that I had to be the one that made that decision. And my sister also did it in in really the most perfect way. And, you know, she had been doing her research and making contacts with treatment centers and had some contacts in her back pocket that afforded us to be able to jump in the car and head like she was ready to pounce when I said I was ready. You know, she didn't force anything down my throat either and was just sort of also ready to capitalize on the day that she probably prayed that I would once say that I was ready. And and when it happened, man, she didn't waste a damn second. Uh, and we were off. So, you know, I think being able to make that own decision was my own decision was was important for me and not feel forced into it.
2: Yeah. And I I feel like we're, I often talk about how we're so such black and white thinkers. And I feel like, We have these concepts and we want these concepts to make sense, and we want to have a day that is a rock bottom. And what's an aha moment and what's a clarity moment? But I'm just like, whatever you want to call it, that was your rock bottom. Even though for many people, maybe the stroke day, stroke day logically feels more like a rock bottom. Rationally, you're like, that would have been your rock bottom. But I'm like, your rock bottom can be a good day. Your rock bottom could be at the end of a good day where you're like, oh, I could have more of these days. This is my yeah. rock bottom. You know, it's just that we just want these labels and these categories and we compare our stories to other people's. But it's truly, I started to understand that's what they mean when they say it's inside of you. It, it's your own definition, your own feeling. And I love how you're sharing, like, capitalize on that, capitalize yeah. on the signs that you get from yourself because only you know those.
1: And, and you know, you know. You know. I think, you know, yeah, exactly.
2: How was this next chapter? How long were you at treatment for? How was it detoxing? How uh, shitty was this <laughs> entering phase into yes. sobriety?
1: <laughs> you know, it was, I look, of course, detox was not fun. I. It was, uh, I, was I was inpatient for six weeks total. I think the typical stay is five weeks. You do a week in in detox and then a week on the inpatient side, but they, they seem to be a little overcrowded when I was there and didn't have a bed ready. So I did, I ended up staying in the detox sort of wing for two weeks and then went on to do the 28 days inpatient. I would say the first 10 days was physically not fun. I wouldn't say it was miserable, you know, they do their best to medically control things and, and there were medications that I could take, but detoxing certainly wasn't fun. You know, I didn't uh, sleep more than a few hours at a time and, you know, the sweats and the shakes and the, I had these weird, like, almost like uh, visions. I don't know, I, I, like not hallucinations, but like visions of like past Like drinking times, like parties and whatnot. It was very strange. So detoxing certainly was not fun. Once I got to the, you know, sort of impatient side where you start like doing the work and learning about addiction and recovery, I I had no idea uh, anything about either addiction or recovery or that this world of sort of working on yourself and learning about how things in your past play into your actions as an adult and how we can change those behaviors. I had no idea about any of this. So I literally was like an A-plus student in a sponge that tried to soak up as much knowledge as I could and participate uh, as much as I could. And, you know, I look back, I went to a state-funded treatment center where you know there were people coming directly from corrections that were court ordered. There were people who, you know, they they tend to help homeless individuals. Like it on the outside, these were not people that I uh, thought that I would relate to or have anything in common with. And these are people that I still keep in touch with to this day.
2: Diversity because of this <laughs> is a huge topic in itself.
1: Yes. And people that I am closest to and relate to the most in my life to this day. So it was life-changing. I look back fondly at it, as crazy as that sounds. And it truly was the start of a new, beautiful life.
2: And disclaimer, I'm really glad you're bringing this up, Nate. I know that going to treatment and even going to therapy, I know it's a privilege. For many of us, I know some people do not have that choice, Yeah, but there are people all around us, you know, that could be at a meeting. It's about really finding people that you can relate to as you've been sharing and that you can connect to. Granted, sometimes we do need professional help. A lot of the times we do need professional (laughs) help, but I want to do share that it is an added layer um, of like gratitude for me always I understand not everyone has the privilege to go to yeah. treatment I also went to treatment it also changed my life and it really acts as a motivator for me long term um, because I know a lot of people would kill to go to treatment and yeah they can't right when you left, was the treatment center a 12-step program? What what was your after-treatment plan to make yeah. sure that you stayed on the course?
1: So it was 12-step focused. And there was this huge focus on the holidays because the sort of class that I was with, we were all going to be getting out like right before Thanksgiving. So it was like mm. the start of the holiday season and like the entire course of, of our uh, coursework really over the four week period was like a holiday plan, and again, Smart. I I just tried to yeah yeah I, I credit them with that. So I I got out two days before Thanksgiving, and you know just remained completely willing and teachable the entire time, and you know realized the fact that listen my choices. Thus far, for my first 32 years, got me here. um, And those weren't working for me. So, why don't you tell me what to do? And, you know, folks in recovery kind of like to give advice sometimes. So, they were very open to that. We had a detailed plan, it was written in my planner. And, you know, again, I got out two days before Thanksgiving. I went home, I took a shower, and I went to a 12 step meeting. And I did 90 and 90. And, I have remained entrenched in in 12-step work since.
2: I really appreciate what you said about handing the decision-making to somebody else. I feel like, like you said, we love giving advice. I feel like I personally am making the transition to becoming a better listener and just holding space because I also realize my advice is also not always needed. But I think... The thing I do tell people and is advice that I do like sharing is I couldn't trust myself. And if you are ready to change, I think such such a smart thing to do is hand off the decision making to somebody else until you get enough reps where you can trust yourself again. The bottom line is yes. I didn't trust myself again and I needed for someone else to tell me what you do, exactly what you said, and just be a good student, like you said, and say, okay, I, I may not want to do it, I may not be in the mood, but I just need to follow this freaking instruction manual, because I know that if I go back to my own handwritten manual, I know that it's not going to end well, and that's a, yeah. that's a choice that I had to make, and it didn't mean that I was happy about it every day, but I did make the choice to give the decision-making power to somebody else because I still couldn't distinction between my addictive voice and my well being voice. And I I just wasn't ready to do it because consciously you may know, you may come out of a treatment center and know, this is what I need to do to continue. But the subconscious is such a sneaky bee.
1: (laughs) Such a sneaky bee. I will say too, with the 90 and 90, like I was very conscious about making a plan for the next day's meeting with someone at the current meeting. So I'm, I'm sitting in a meeting, you know, we talk, tried to do my best to interact with folks after the meeting and tried to make a plan, like, hey, are you hitting a meeting tomorrow? Where will it be? Okay, see you at six o'clock. It's, to your point, I needed sort of that um, agenda or that mm-hmm. timeline laid out for me. So I kind of let other people decide where the meeting was going to be the next day and where I was like committing to meeting someone. So I did that for three months, like for the 90 days.
2: I mean, for those of you that aren't familiar with AA, there's also like little things that they do, like you're in charge of coffee tomorrow. And that purpose yeah. isn't the coffee because the coffee isn't the best. <laughs> the purpose is to have an agenda for you and to make you feel like you're useful and make you feel valued. Like all these things that we need to start cultivating within our sobriety, our are part of of that of that program of of having community that is holding you up and I feel like if you and I are anything similar, if you were used to being independent and getting your work done and everything was fine and learning to be held by others was a progress and is a progress for a lot of us. We don't totally don't want to. We don't want to we don't want to be held. No. Totally. How was work? Did you end up shifting careers or how much did your life change after all of this nate
1: so i was able to to like be off for a portion of time with short-term disability after the stroke so i was able to take some time off to heal a little more physically and you know mentally emotionally i'm sorry after the, the treatment, not the stroke. So I got out of treatment. I was able to to take some additional time off work. So I was off for about four months, which afforded me, you know, this focus of meetings and really focusing on myself. Uh, so that was huge as well. And I did actually shift careers uh, partially, you know, while in this sort of business management and, and restaurant um industry, I, I really found a love for HR and, you know, recruiting and interacting with individuals and having like, sort of like these conversations, which I think is partially what, what led me to podcasting. But I'd sort of shifted the focus to, to the HR side of things. And, you know, it helped because it was a little less stressful and a little less you know physically demanding i mean that the service industry can can be physically demanding and you know i was still recovering physically of course and so yeah i i shifted careers a bit and tried to really focus on myself and focus on learning new things and i got a dog at the time and i started traveling more and you know, things that I forgot that I liked uh, on the course of, of this, you know, nearly two decades of bullshit. And, you know, that helped to, you know, not only bring happiness to my life and sort of fill time that would have been spent drinking before, but it also brought back, you know, a part of myself, the good parts of myself that had been forgotten from before. So I think... It it was beneficial, sort of twofold, and yeah, that's that's sort of how the the aftermath uh, of rehab was, and wouldn't wouldn't change anything.
2: What do you do when you get a craving, Nate? Do you still get cravings? You're almost six years in.
1: Yeah, I, I could say it's probably been four years since I've had a craving, by the grace of God, and I would say when I did, it was probably sweets like I had again I learned that in the rooms like have candy around and eat eat some candy and drink a full glass of water and typically the craving will pass in like 15 or 20 minutes like something I learned like probably day two in treatment and it always stuck with me so that's that's usually what I did uh with a craving now if it was something that was sort of you know digging a little bit harder, I usually tried to do something physical so that I could get my mind off of it. So I would go to the dog park, or I would jump on my bicycle or, you know, something sort of physical to, you know, sort of change my mindset a bit.
2: At the beginning of our chat, you shared almost right away that you resorted to drinking to, like, not only ease some discomfort, but to fit in. And that was one of the reasons where what I used why I used to drink as well. And I have a question for you now. Do you ever feel out of place still? And how do you handle that? Because I feel like I've, I like myself now, but that doesn't exempt me from still feeling a little bit out of place sometimes. So it's weird because I'm kind of at peace with it, but the, but the weird discomfort of not fitting in sometimes is still there. So how do you handle that? Does it still happen to you?
1: it definitely still happens. I would say that uh, it happens less and less because I too like myself now and and I realize what I can contribute to a conversation or what I can contribute to a group of people. And I am now proud of that. So, you know, I try my best to just get out get out of my head, because I know that that's where it stems from. And it certainly does still happen. But I I just try to do the next, do, do what's right. Because I know if I walk up to that group of people, and I try to jump into their conversation, or if I introduce myself to that new person, like I know that it will go away. But it's just that sort of invisible barrier that keeps me in that place. So it certainly still happens. But I, I just try to do my best to to just put my damn foot in front of the other one and walk over and, and get out of my head and, and sort of jump into whatever situation it is. Definitely easier said than done. And it doesn't always happen, but that's what I try to do. Or, you know, I just get a coffee and and sit in the corner and wait until somebody comes over to me I mean that happens too (laughs) I'm not gonna lie that's the other
2: thing yeah every day there's like a spectrum and yeah same with our comfort zone some days you can step out of it sometimes you're like I'm just gonna stay over here and I'm not upward. I'm totally cool
1: with that too yeah yeah I mean no worries
2: oh Nate I feel like we could talk forever it's (laughs) time for our I know. It's time for a rapid fire round. I can't okay. believe we're already Ooh, this long me. in, but are you ready for some questions? Ready. Okay. If you could answer these in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Okay. Number one is what is an unexpected perk of sobriety?
1: The ability to contribute thoughts and feel confident in my my knowledge and what I can offer someone.
2: Does that make sense? Shit. Yes, it makes sense. The ability (laughs) to contribute to other people's lives, including our own. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. What's your favorite ice cream flavor?
1: Chocolate chip cookie dough.
2: What would you say to younger Nate? Oh,
1: man, it gets better. Nate, you will surprise yourself and you're stronger than you think.
2: 100%. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery?
1: I work a twelve step program, and I realize that everyone has their own path to recovery, and perhaps it's it's not the journey for everyone. However, I I have found strength uh, in working a twelve step program, so that is my first go to. Outside of that, I think it's surrounding yourself with like minded people and people that can relate and have the same lived experience that you do. That maybe your mom or your sister, or your or your best friend don't understand. So I think surrounding yourself with others in recovery is important. And I'm a big fan of recovery podcasts. I think, you know, That Sober Guy and Recovery Elevator and The Only One in the Room are top three that I've probably listened to for, I mean, a couple years at this point, Um, when I first started like really becoming a fan of podcasts. I think it's just the perfect Platform. I think the platform just lends itself so perfectly for uh, recovery. It's almost like a meeting on the go sometimes when you need it. And I would say the the recovery community on Instagram has been amazing and boundless and full of resources. And if it's someone that you just need to talk to, or someone that you want to find in your hometown, or to find a meeting, or for some inspiration, the Recovery community on Instagram. I I really cannot recommend it highly enough. That was longer than thirty seconds.
2: You going to pass. Don't worry. <laughs> I have a question that's specific to you, Nate. I've never asked this to anybody else. I know you have your own podcast. We're gonna link everything. Sobriety Diaries. You guys, if in case you don't follow Nate yet, but how well represented do you see the queer community being in sobriety? Was it? It did it have to do with your decision to start a podcast or? How has that been for you?
1: I have been talking to a PR team and contemplating the fact of shifting the focus of these sobriety diaries primarily to focus on the queer community. And I have been sitting in my thoughts and asking my higher power for a sign to to tell me whether that's the right decision or not. And you just asking me that question just confirmed it. And I... I've been second guessing myself whether I want to be like this representative of the queer community or if I would alienate listeners that I've already gained by focusing strictly on telling stories. I have not cried this much (laughs) in years, whether or not I would alienate listeners that I've already gained by focusing strictly on the queer community or whether I would be an advocate and, you know, being someone that, that would put myself out there and help younger Nate to answer your question from before. Mm -hmm. And I now have my answer. So I hope that answers your question because I got my answer from it.
2: I'm here for it. I'm here for you. And I know I'm not alone. So I'm excited to see where this is gonna take you. I know it's just the beginning. Thank you, Nate. I have a couple more. Go for it. (laughs) What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are on the fence about quitting drinking?
1: I think we know Deep within, I knew deep within, and there were there were small seeds planted along the way that I tended to ignore and that I tried to push down and stunt the growth of of these seeds that were that were growing inside of me. Of of knowing that my drinking was problematic and I was headed down this path of destruction. So I would say to listen to that nagging thought in the back of your mind or listen to that seed that's kind of growing in your gut and 100% take advantage of any of those small moments of clarity or those uh, small uh, sort of things that reveal themselves. And And you know what they may be. If you know you don't need to see like a a flash from the sky or a a strike of lightning in front of you, I think it can, it can be very subtle, but it, it will speak to you when you see it. And I think to, to kind of bring it full circle, it, you really have to capitalize on, on those small moments of clarity and those small moments of willingness.
2: And before we depart, Nate, give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line.
1: I think you may have to say adios to booze if it's your best friend, but it never calls you back.
2: <laughs> so true and we're so <laughs> afraid to break up with our best friend and they don't uh, even care <laughs> they don't
1: give a shit about us yet we cling cling to it for so long
2: Nate, this was such a lovely conversation thank you so much i can't wait to air this thank you thank you i know we'll be in touch yes please
1: you. do you have my email i would love to keep in
2: touch we will take care have okay. a great rest of your day
1: you too thanks so much
2: Very well, Team RE, that wraps our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to share something with you. I recently taught a session in our Dry July Restore course, and one of the topics that I addressed was seeing this journey as an opportunity versus a sacrifice. I understand that crossing the bridge from being mad or sad that you can't drink anymore to feeling grateful takes time and every chapter of our journey needs to be validated. However, I do feel that a few things can act as a catalyst to help during this process. One of those things is creating and fostering a gratitude mindset. I wanna share with you what I've been doing to deepen my gratitude practice in the last year. For the last almost 12 months, every evening at 7 p.m., I call my friend Christina. Our call lasts only two minutes. When she picks up, all I say is, ready? She says yes. Then we go back and forth sharing three things that we are each grateful for. We don't make it long. We don't ask each other how our day was or how are you? It's just a two-minute gratitude exchange. And then we hang up. This seemingly small habit has helped me look for the good every day. And when we see the good in our journey, we are better able to see it as an opportunity. Do you have a gratitude practice? Remember that you're not alone, and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, this isn't a no to alcohol, but a yes to a better life. I love you guys.
3: Get out of the store. because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? My response is always the same. Burn shifts. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive you to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. And it's these feelings that always lead to the same thoughts thereby completing
0: the cycle if you can recognize this you will be empowered to change your thinking